Coming up on the Money Bee Podcast, we're getting excited for earnings season, and it looks like it's going to be a strong one. Plus, we're going to go wonky and talk Fed balance sheet. This is Money Bee from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Money Bee Podcast. This is Steve Grosser. Paul Vigna is still off this week writing his Walking Dead book. Um, we're going to be talking a little earnings this week because you know, nothing gets us more excited, I think, in the the in M and I than a little earnings season. Um, it gives us at least something to write about when the, when the markets have been fairly unvolatile for the past uh, few uh, weeks, months, um, all that stuff. So we brought on Akanye Otani. She's our markets reporter, and she was out earlier this week with a, a smart look at what expectations are for earnings. And as always, we will be, we're bringing in Ben Eisen. And for the insights of Heard on the Street, we have Spencer Jacob. Um, I want to get right off the bat with you, uh, Kanye. We're looking at Johnson & Johnson, I think, uh, Verizon, General Electric. We also have, I think, next Thursday, a week from today, is the big bank earnings day that has now sort of come to kick off earnings season with J.P. Morgan, Wells, and Citi reporting. What, what are analysts expecting this quarter? So then analysts, as of March 31st, were expecting 9.1% year-over-year earnings growth for the first quarter. So that would be the best results since the fourth quarter of 2011. Um, it is down from what they were expecting at the end of 2016. They originally had set the bar as high as 12.5%. But 9.1%, um, if, if that comes through, should still be uh, pretty solid earnings results. And, and that's not unusual, too. We should point out that as you know, the quarter progresses – analyst estimates come in for the you know the overall quarter earnings. Yeah. Correct? Yeah, Bank of America actually took a look at the numbers and how much they've changed and they saw that uh, the numbers have been cut less this year than they have in the previous couple of years. Now, I, I wonder and, and you know, is that a is that a bearish sign or a good sign? I mean, is that something people should be worried about? And the reason I'm ta- I'm sort of taking a, perhaps a contrarian view, but we know coming into the year and everyone, everyone got very excited for the Trump trade, pro-growth policies, how that was going to impact, you know, corporate earnings, you know, if they got tax cuts and um, and, and also, you know, fiscal stimulus. The, the, the big question is, are we setting ourselves up for maybe a disappointment? Yeah, I mean, I think some people would say that, you know, um, I think some people still think that the expectations are way too high this year for earnings and that, you know, we've the market has priced in a lot of these benefits like tax cuts, fiscal stimulus, but we're still seemingly very far away from those things becoming reality. So if the earnings can't meet the high expectations that have been set, what's that going to do for the market? Um, So I definitely think there are people out there who see um, who see this as sort of a bearish signal. But I, I, you know, it's the, I have to say it, it's very typical. I mean, there's nothing yeah. unusual about the pattern of, let's say, if you go out a year, a year before earnings are, are set to drop uh, or set to, to be announced, expectations are high. Right. They get lower, 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 lower over the course of that year. And then they get so low uh, before uh, a quarter is quarterly reporting season yeah. is about to begin that uh, on average about 70% of companies beat which right. is like, it's called a surprise ratio, which is the most, in, you know, it's not really an apt description because you you should never be surprised to see 70% of companies creating positive surprises and about 
fifteen percent only creating negative surprises. It's not going to be very different this time. I and mean, we we know pretty much there'll be some shockers in there, some good ones and some bad ones. But as there always are. But that's that's par for the course. Uh, well, I mean, that's like the whole earnings game, right? Yeah. I mean, like, and a lot of one of the reasons why they come in as the year progresses and as the quarter progresses is because you know companies tend to downplay their forecasts a bit to the analysts so that they have a, a an easier bar to clear. Right. At and least that's the long exactly. And they high five each other and say, "Great quarter." Exactly. <laughs> but the, the there's a separate question, and you're kind of conflating the two, right? There's the separate question of have markets gotten ahead of themselves? And that's very possible. Well, I, what I was meaning was uh, when I, the question I was sort of trying to get at was whether the fact that earn, the expectations weren't coming down as fast as typical, was that or could that be a sort of worrying indicator? But it, I think you're right that the next question should be have, have, have markets already priced in very strong earnings growth, too strong earnings growth? I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, if just getting – you know, one more little tidbit about this quarter. If you look at, at energy, right, uh, a year ago, this quarter that's about to be reported, energy uh, didn't have earnings. It was negative in aggregate, uh, according right. to S&P Capital yep. Q's numbers, slightly negative. And now it's it's strongly positive, a big, big, big swing. Um, if you strip out that dollar uh, change for the S&P 500, right. uh, there is no growth. So it it is all explained by by energy, and then you have materials, which are oh really? There's companies. no, there's no. There really, there really. I is, thought it was about five percent. Yeah, I think it is 5%. for the S and P five hundred. Well, it's still, still fairly low. Uh, you know, in line with past past estimates. We're we're also using S. We're past using quarters. facts. Set. Okay, uh, using facts. Okay, yeah. I I guess they they have slightly different numbers or different way of measuring it. I know the. Um, but that's still yeah. a sizable. Like I mean, it, it cuts. Your point is still taken that yeah. it, it essentially mm-hmm. cuts. It's a big boost. Yeah. You know? And, yeah, and that's and that's not you know that that's just commodity prices. Yeah, I, mean, I think Ben, you you'd mentioned this in a Money Beat post a couple of weeks ago about how that that earnings season might be a little bit precarious if we're sort of counting on energy to provide such a big part of that boost. Right. Maybe that's that's sort of the most bearish thing about this earnings season. That yeah, maybe you have this big boost, but because it's due in large part to one sector that did really poorly and now is doing really well, but on the whole is just kind of evening out. Like, what does that mean? Once you have a quarter of, of, of or a couple quarters of stable energy prices, neither boosting nor pulling down earnings. And, and when we're saying like the, we're talking that when we talk about the earnings picture in this regard, we're talking, I think, in, in over the whole year, like this quarter is going to have strong earnings and it's driven largely because oil prices bottomed in February on February 11th in 2016, around twenty six dollars. They are now they've stayed above right around fifty dollars, forty eight, fifty dollars for most of the first quarter. However, the rebound in oil prices, you know, began in the spring of last year and carried through the summer. And you know, for the most part, last year you saw oil companies oil prices in sort of that forty to fifty range for much of last year. So the they're not going to get a similar boost in the quarters coming up to their earnings because oil prices had rebounded, right? Is that essentially what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I got yeah. nothing more to say on that. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> Very succinct. Yeah. yeah. And then, I mean, and, and, then, and then there's the big, big question. What are you paying for each dollar of, of those earnings, right? I mean, it's very volatile because you have a lot of moving parts. Energy's moving the needle a bit. But let's adjust. Let, let's take a measure that 
adjust for things like that, uh, even adjust for the earnings cycle. Like take take the Schiller PE, you know, yeah. which is uh, inflation adjusted trail actual um, you know actual operating earnings, earnings over uh, over the the last decade. You're in the something like the 96th percentile uh, in terms of highest observations ever. Yeah. Or look at, at trailing or, or forward P. Those are, are very high, the highest since uh, since the, te- the tech bubble. Right. That was much higher, but still, we're, you know, it's the highest since then. So there's some some concern. You know. Yeah, this level, you know, since essentially the tech bubble, but in well over a decade. Or if earnings keep coming down, that's only going to get more stretched if the markets stay at this level or go at all higher. So, you know, that's... For investors, that might be something to you know to watch out for, in terms of rich. I think that's probably a good place to leave it. When we come back, we'll talk to Ben Eisen about the Fed's balance sheet. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Love tech? Dig gadgets? Then make tech news briefing from the Wall Street Journal a part of your day. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, and welcome back to the Money Beat Podcast. If you like this podcast, or if you like the Herd on the Streets podcast, or any of the other WSJ podcasts, uh, you should follow us at Twitter at WSJ Podcast. Um, and, you, and make sure, I mean, this is, the I think, the big part of the plug, is to share our shows with your friends. Follow us on Facebook uh, slash WSJ Podcast. And you can also find us, as we've said many times before, on iTunes. Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. If you have a Google Android device, we're in the Google Play Music app, and also Amazon Echo or Amazon Tap. Um, I really like the old sort of segue where they spelled it out. They even spelled out slash. It really dumbed it down for me. I, I have a lot harder time like actually trying to figure this one out. Um, I hope I did okay there. Ben, we're bringing you in because you like Wonk. And yes. the Fed balance sheet Indeed. is wonky. And, I'm, and, and also the unraveling of the Fed balance sheet is it, – it's complicated. It's just a note that people can go to sleep right now if they, if they want to. Yeah, but, it's a, but, the, but it's a big issue. The Fed has $4.5 trillion in assets on its balance sheet yeah, right and, now. And, as, and you they, said, as you said this morning, it's kind of having a moment. People, yeah. people, are, are really <clears throat> people are really starting to pay attention. It was on the top of the journal on Saturday's paper, uh, top story. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's definitely sort of the time when people are starting to think about – um, okay, the Fed has the Fed has amassed 4.5 trillion dollars worth of bonds uh, through all of its post-crisis bond buying spree, and now it has to figure out what it wants to do with that. Um, and well, and I guess the first question is, what has it been doing with it? I mean, obviously they have bonds, and you know when those bonds come to maturity and roll off, what have they been doing? They've been reinvesting them, basically. So uh, if you own some treasury bonds and then they come due and you have cash, uh, you can either uh, – if you're the Fed, you basically take that cash and you and you put it back into the market. Um, so their balance sheet has been pretty steady over time, but uh, it, it, it hasn't shrunk. And um, so what they're thinking of doing in order to shrink it is 
in, in some ways slowing or stopping reinvestments of, of maturing debt. Um, and that's something that um, there are indications that they'll maybe start doing this at the end of the year after they raise rates a couple more times, basically take a pause and see what happens if they stop reinvesting some of the maturing debt and um, and, and whether the market can handle it and, uh, and from there sort of decide uh, how they want to kind of wind this down but but ben i mean if they they going cold turkey is um a bit of an extreme option right i mean because they as i was just looking next year they have something like 426 billion maturing just of treasuries Mm -hmm. and that's not including the agency stuff right and i mean they're not going to go take their balance sheet down to zero either they they had a balance sheet of nearly a trillion before the crisis Mm -hmm. so i mean that's that's Going like cold temper- turkey, you mean yeah, actually over- stopping the reinvestments altogether? Right, exactly. I yeah, mean, that, I mean, that's that's like a like tightening, isn't it? That that would be yeah, a pretty extreme measure of tightening, I'd right. say. And, and I, I don't think the consensus. I would say that the consensus is is not that they would stop uh, stop reinvesting altogether. Although there are, I think, a couple analysts who are calling for stopping reinvestments of certain parts of the portfolio altogether. But but yeah, definitely the key here is that this is like a very slow and winding process, I think. And I think, that, like, let's take a step back for people who aren't following this as closely. Why is stopping reinvesting tightening? Basically, um, when you... Well, there, there's there's two schools of thoughts, basically. Two schools of thought on in terms of what easing is, which is the opposite of tightening. Right. Um, and one says that the act of sort of purchasing bonds... Uh, uh, known as like the flow effect is what basically pulling bonds out of the market uh, is is one form of easing. And others say sort of the stock effect of actually just holding a large portfolio of debt is uh, is is the actual easing aspect of it. But either way, when you're sort of uh, uh, making the market smaller by buying up pieces of it, you're um, you know you're you're adjusting supply and demand, and right. that makes that, you're increasing that, the demand side. And reducing the supply. Supply side, yeah. Yeah. And so, and so you're reducing bond yields and you're reducing yeah. cost of financing. Mm-hmm. So if they, I mean, let's say what's what's a good rule of thumb? I mean, if they, they slow down, um, or not slow down, but if they um, uh, allow some things to mature and, and, and don't reinvest um, at, at some moderate pace, what effectively... At what point does it become a quarter point or a half point or three quarters of a point of a uh, of a rate rise? I mean, because that's at the same time they're also they're also using the tool that we're all familiar with, which mm-hmm. is which is the the federal funds rate. But this is akin to uh, a, a tightening, right? I mean, uh, mm-hmm. it's another tool. People think it would affect the sort of the long the longer dated part of the market. So if you think about short term debt, that's that's most sensitive to the Fed funds rate and. The balance sheet, uh, because the Fed holds a lot of long-term securities, uh, stopping reinvestments or slowing reinvestments would would uh, maybe impact longer rates, which can affect a different part of the economy. Um, that said, this is this is pretty unprecedented. The Fed's never had four point five trillion dollars worth of debt on its balance sheet, mm-hmm. so uh, uh, I don't think anyone really knows like like what the what the effect is going to be. Um, I, I think the one sort of thing that people start to point to when they think about what's going to happen is uh, the so-called taper tantrum we had in 2013, where um, the Fed basically signaled it was going to stop buying new bonds, stop adding to its balance sheet, and that um, that caused a lot of sort of market fluctuations over a pretty short period of time in the summer of 2013. Uh, 
treasury yields hit the 10 year treasury yield hit like 3% yep. uh and since then it's come back down a lot and hasn't hit that but um that was pretty it was pretty dramatic at the time yeah no i mean so. they, they caught markets completely off guard right. and but then also i mean the, so the us if if we did this i mean us is already going its own way because mm-hmm. we you know of the the three major global central banks we're the one that's not purchasing bonds anymore yeah. uh and that now we would be going the complete opposite direction um, mm-hmm. by the reverse of, of uh, quantitative easing. I mean, does that put us, um, does, does that affect the value of the dollar? Does that um, make it more difficult for the ECB or the Bank of Japan to, uh, to do their job? I mean, are, we sort of, are they swimming against a, a, a tide that we create? I mean, I, I think that that's definitely a, a consideration. I think that's something people are worried about. But at the same time, they're probably not swimming against the tide as much as they would have been if they did this last year when um, all sorts of uh, you know, unprecedented easing measures were being tried out in Japan and Europe. Now it seems like they're, they're – they're, they're, uh, I mean, tell me what you think, but it seems like uh, – uh, the ECB and the BOJ have sort of decided that they're kind of done with these experimental measures, that they're not kind of pushing as far in the opposite dir- direction as as, as they were uh, last year. So, so 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 that might be one kind of limiting factor on 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 what what could happen. I mean, Mario Draghi, you know, most recent indication is that they have no plans to um, to taper, right? And you know, and between now and let's say, I mean, Bill Dudley of the New York Fed, you know kind of hinted that this, you know, kind of slowdown of of reinvestment could start by the end of this year. By the end of this year, you might have Italy in a kind of a full-blown crisis, according to some people. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it sounds like things, events could intervene, right? I mean, that's, that's my, those are my thoughts. What what about what this means for the economy? Because, you know, you do have the, the economic recovery remains fragile, um, and you know, and it's one of the reasons why the Fed has taken a very slow pace in raising rates. How does the, I mean? It, it seems like the Fed's in a very complicated place in with this in terms of how it moves and how that impacts interest rates and how those then impact the U.S. economy. Yeah, and it kind of when you're undertaking this kind of thing, you kind of have to. Uh, uh, I mean. Monetary policy is a very blunt tool, but to, to some extent, you can kind of uh, pinpoint which sectors of the economy you impact with your policies. And I mean, balance sheet—if it impacted long-term rates as opposed to short-term rates, which is what you know, uh, like hiking rates does—perhaps um, you'd affect like the real. The, this was something that I had read uh, a few months ago that, that maybe this would affect the real estate sector more. Uh, uh, than than short term rates and the housing market could take a little bit of a hit because of this. Um, that said, if you're if you're doing that rather than lifting short term rates, um, you know maybe you're not impacting the banking sector as much. Maybe you're you're steepening the yield curve and that that uh, helps inflate bank profits. So um, you know all, all of these again we don't know what's going to happen, but right. all of these are sort of different possibilities of how you can kind of. Uh, uh, Try to, I guess, micromanage uh, what is otherwise a pretty like blunt tool. Now, before we sign off, I just wanted to bring up your story today too, where you talk about an interesting aspect of the fact that you know the rates, mortgage rates have gone up. They're over, you know, well over four percent now. Um, how is that? How does that impact the Fed's balance sheet and the, how the Fed approaches, uh, you know, unraveling it? Yeah, I mean, it's it was an interesting thing that, w- that we looked into. This was basically sort of the impact of uh, 
rising mortgage rates on the balance sheet, which has um, actually a pretty notable effect because the Fed, you know, one point eight trillion of the four point five trillion dollars that the Fed holds is uh, is mortgage agency mortgage backed securities, which are um, sensitive. They react to uh, refinancing rates. So when refi- when uh, when the cost of a mortgage goes up, fewer people refinance, and basically that means that the agency mor- mortgage-backed securities, mortgage bonds, uh, they're slower to mature. Um, and when they're slower to mature, the Fed has less to reinvest. So basically the Fed has already kind of slowed down its purchases of new mortgage-backed securities because fewer of them are maturing, um, which is pr- kind of a complex and winding way of saying that uh, it's it's already buying up less debt, and if you sort of adhere to the idea that that the purchases of bonds are what what uh, are the easing measure measure that the Fed is undertaking, then in some ways it's already kind of tightening, um, and that could be a consideration when it decides how how quickly does it want to slow down its reinvestments, um, because in some ways it's already slowed. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably a good place to leave it. Thank you, Spencer. Thank you, Ben. Um, and come back. We'll have more podcasts. Granted, it's only one day left in the week, but we'll have a few more podcasts for you. Um, and we will also be live blogging the jobs report tomorrow. I know Ben's really excited for that. But, Super excited. Uh, come back. Thanks a lot. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.